0: Coming up on Word Matters, things get Orwellian, in the narrowest sense of the word. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. In 1946, George Orwell published his now-famous essay, Politics and the English Language. Ammon sincerely wishes he hadn't.
1: One of the questions I feel like when you work in dictionaries that you often get from people is that people always want to know what words are there that you hate or that one (laughs) hates or would banish from the language and what words do you like? I feel like most lexicographers I know are pretty studious in trying to avoid having favorites, or certainly about having disfavorite words. But what I do have a distaste for is writings about words. My least favorite words are just peeves about language. I have to say, perhaps foremost among my personal peeves is a piece of writing that is beloved by many. And I like to think this is not just my contrary in nature that makes it so despised by me. It's that I think it's a bad piece of writing. I am speaking, of course, of George Orwell's politics in the English language. Have you two feelings on this?
2: I've only just read it recently. It's one of those things that is referred to so frequently, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't think I ever studied it in school. And so I took some of it kind of secondhand for granted the way lots of intellectual movements, someone didn't have to study Derrida to know what deconstruction is, or to at least know that that word is used often by other people. And so I often took this to be a reference to the idea that politicians use words in a deliberately manipulative way. And so I took it not as a linguistic document at all, but as a kind of more philosophical or political idea. I usually saw it in the context of names of political parties or movements or laws, something like the Clean Air Act, which I think was criticized Uh for also helping fossil fuels. And so people said, well, that's Aurelian, because if you call it one thing, but you really mean something else. So I interpreted it in that very filtered way through the culture.
0: I think I read it about five years after I read Animal Farm. So Animal Mm -hmm. Farm, eighth grade, freshman year of college, maybe, politics in the English language. And I think I loved them both and believed them both completely, thought they were just both absolutely brilliant. I didn't actually read this 1946 essay again until last night. I see some problems with Orwell's (laughs) assertions at this stage, but I can also defend some of them, so.
1: Okay, great. What is this, if not an an argument? As you pointed out, it was published in 1946. It came out in the journal Horizon. When we talk about this particular essay, it is always important to note right at the beginning that Orwell himself is claiming that he's not speaking about language in general. He's talking about political language or the language used by politicians. He specifically says, I have not here been considering the literary use of language. If we're generous, we can give him that, but I think it's kind of a dodge because I feel like he does kind of broaden his scope. But also I feel like... One of the things that has happened with this particular essay is that it is used as kind of a club by many people today in talking about language, and it is almost never used in the context of political language. People just talk about Orwell's views on English, and they don't say, this is what Orwell had to say about politicians using the language. It's just used as a kind of general thing. To me, one of the main problems is that Orbo seems to have very little idea of how language in general, and English in particular, actually works. It almost is farcically bad. And I remember reading it as a kid and thinking, oh, this must be great. He's laying down these rules. And we all love rules. We want rules about language. We want language to make sense. And it feels very comforting to think that these are concrete steps that I can take to make my language use better. But they're not true. And to say that the messenger is flawed is really kind of being overkind.
0: What does he say that's not true? Well,
1: he has a lot of things about, like, use short words. Never use a long word where a short word will do. Which is kind of this long-standing bugaboo with many people. Before Fowler wrote Modern English Usage, his famous book in 1926, he wrote a book with his brother, The King's English. They said you should always prefer the Saxon word to the romance. E.B. White in Elements of Style actually wrote, Anglo-Saxon is a livelier tongue than Latin, so use Anglo-Saxon words. Winston Churchill is quoted, whether he said it or not, as saying short words are best in the old words when short are best of all. We've long had this kind of feeling that you should go with the short Anglo-Saxon words rather than these fancy flowery long Latin words, which to me is just kind of a silly thing to say. I like long words, and when long words are appropriate, they're totally fine. So I think saying never use a long word when a short one would do is a little bit awkward considering that Orwell uses plenty of long words.
0: I'm looking at the essay in the second paragraph. He uses the word slovenliness. There's some significant letters in there.
1: What he's very good at doing, though, is breaking his own rule in the same sentence that he gives it. In this particular essay, he says, there was a long list of fly-blown metaphors, which could similarly be got rid of. This is in the section where he says, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Fly-blown is, of course, a metaphor. Unless the actual words here have the larva of flies kind of growing (laughs) out of them, they are not actually fly-blown metaphors. They are metaphorical metaphors that he's talking about. The essay also has plenty of similes, like cavalry horses answering the bugle, a mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow. He talks about like a cuttlefish spreading out ink. He uses these similes and metaphors liberally. So it's kind of odd to me that he exhorts us to not use them. I think perhaps his most egregious mistake is when he says, never use the passive voice where you can use the active.
0: Except Ammon, he doesn't say it like that. This stuck out to me also. He says...
1: It's the very first sentence. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way, comma... And then he says, it is generally assumed Mm. passive voice here that we cannot by (laughs) conscious action do anything about it. So he's using the passive voice to tell you not to use the passive voice. So either he he doesn't believe his own advice or he doesn't understand it.
0: And then later in the same essay, he says, in addition, the passive voice is wherever possible used in preference to the active. That itself (laughs) is in the passive voice. The passive voice is used, not writers use the passive voice. And just to refresh people, if you wanted to say the passive voice is wherever possible used in preference to the active, you would say writers use Mm. the passive voice wherever possible rather than preferring the active voice. Right. So he is actively doing the things he says writers should not do in his own writing over and over again.
1: And he does it in almost all cases. In fact, some people connected with language have found fault with this essay over the years. And my favorite was some while ago, some people went through and and actually counted the number of instances in which he used the passive rather than the active voice and found that he was about twice as much as your average (laughs) college essay at the time. He's using it in like 20% of the cases as opposed to 10% of the time when people usually use it in this setting. Wow. He says, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word, if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And he gives a list of phrases to avoid, do a machina, matutus mutanda, status quo, ancient regime. If you go through any of his writings, he uses most of these in his other writings. He doesn't actually use them in this essay. So this is one that he's doing okay with, but he does use them regularly. Overall, my favorite is his sixth rule, which is break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. And I like this so much because it is the one rule that he actually adheres to (laughs) in his own writing. He breaks all of his own rules so much that it raises the question of why he thought that this should happen in the first place.
2: To me, it's the first sentence of the second paragraph that caught my eye because he identifies himself as being a member of a kind of club and invites us to join that club. He says, now it is clear that the decline of a language must ultimately have political and economic causes. Now, first of all, I don't think it's clear at all. And second of all, he's announcing himself as a declinist, that kids today, basically, is what he's saying. And that everything must be worse today because I remember when it was better. And that is basically the same exact argument we hear all the time. It's the exact same argument that was put against Webster's Third. It's declinism. It's that everything is going to pot and everything is terrible. The weird thing about Orwell is that he makes the same mistake that everyone with a declinist argument makes, which is that he expects language to provide logic. And that's just not how writing works. He insists that the decadent culture has produced a collapse of language, and that that collapsed language then perpetuates this decline, which is an intellectual race to the bottom. which was exactly the argument against Webster's third, blaming the dictionary for a perceived drop in quality of standardized test results or something. But the difference is he often seems to be blaming the words rather than the writing. I think he does
1: blame the words rather than writing. He also thinks that if we all just kind of steal ourselves, we can change this. We can stem the flow of bad language by just kind of being conscious of the words that we use. We're going to set a good example. And there's a great point. In this, where he talks about how the jeers of a few journalists have done away with a number of phrases that he doesn't like, like explore every avenue and leave no stone unturned. I think he's really overstating the effect that jeers of a few journalists can have on the language use of hundreds of millions of people. And if you look at explore every avenue and leave no stone unturned, in the decades following the 1940s, they actually increased dramatically. They're not going away. And if they did go away, it wouldn't be because a few journalists like George Orwell jeered at them. It would be because people just stopped using these phrases.
0: You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be right back with more on Orwell's Politics and the English Language. Word Matters is produced by Merriam Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.com merriam webstercom by using the promo code MATTERS at checkout. That's MATTERS, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at shop.merriam-webster.com.
1: I'm and Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com.
2: I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. The
0: conversation about George Orwell's politics and the English language continues. I do think, though, that the writing that he objects to, and he starts out by giving five examples, I think, it is bad writing. He is pointing out that there are real problems. Here is his first example, which I found just mind-numbing, was by Professor Harold Lasky. The example says... I am not, indeed, sure whether it is not true to say that the Milton who once seemed not unlike a 17th century Shelley had not become, out of an experience ever more bitter in each year, more alien to the founder of that Jesuit sect which nothing could induce him to tolerate. I'm really good at reading opaque texts, and (laughs) this is really, really hard to follow.
1: I agree with you, absolutely. But I would point out that almost nothing in that would be fixed by any of the rules in Orwell's Mm. essay. He's using lots of short Saxon words in that piece. He's not using any metaphors or similes that I can see of. He's not using foreign expressions or phrases. I agree, that is a horrible piece of writing. Or I would not myself enjoy reading writing like that anyway. (laughs) I'm with Orwell when he says that there is some bad writing out there. When he says there's bad political writing, absolutely. But I feel that what he's kind of saying is let's make it better. Sure, I agree with that. That's where my agreement ends.
0: You agree with none of his advice?
1: I kind of agree with some of it a little bit. If it's (laughs) possible to cut a word out, always cut it out? No, I don't agree with that. And I think that's just the stylistic difference. I think if you look at writing of the 19th century, it's different than writing in the 20th century. It's just stylistically changed. I don't think that one is better for length than the other, or one is better for its brevity than the other.
0: I also have a problem with these kind of absolute statements. Never use the passive voice. Always use the fewest words possible. I think any kinds of absolutes are problematic. To always avoid any particular thing in writing is unhelpfully narrowing.
1: A great example of this kind of absolutism gone wrong is we're all familiar with the never-end-a-sentence-with-a-preposition. And, of course, that's the meaningless thing. We end sentences with a preposition all the time, and a lot of times the sentence construction demands ending a sentence with a preposition. Terminal prepositions are fine, even though we've been saying hearing for hundreds of years that they're not. Every once in a while, somebody will come up with a variant on that, and I used to occasionally see the rule in old usage books, never-end-a-sentence-with-a-preposition or some other less meaningful word, or insignificant word, I think was the way that they used to phrase it. And we're starting to make a little more sense if you don't want to end a sentence with a little blip, if you don't want to end your sentence with of. Now, I don't think of prepositions as less meaningful or less significant, personally, but that's just me. But I could see if somebody had the exhortation to end your sentence on an emphatic, a meaningful, significant word. It's fine with me. I like that as a general rule of advice. But when you turn that into don't end it with a word that's less meaningful or significant, and that somehow becomes don't end it with a preposition or don't end it with this kind of thing. And that's a kind of absolutism that just doesn't carry water.
0: This makes me think about the motivation for writing an essay such as this and the motivation for sharing an essay like this, right? This essay was written a long time ago now in 1946. It is still something that people are talking about and are using in the aid of their own writing and to try to get other people to be better writers. There is a desire among users of the English language to do that better, to become a better writer. And that clearly Orwell thought that he had some important things as a skilled writer. This man was clearly a skilled writer of the English language. He published books. He knew how to use the English language. He was an expert in language use as much as anyone else who writes so many books or who spends so much time using language. Any native speaker is actually also an expert. But he had very specific kind of expertise, and he wanted to share this expertise with people, but he generalized his own expertise in a way that, as you point out, Ammon, was not even an accurate assessment of his own use. Why did he do that? What was he thinking?
1: I don't know why Orwell would write this. The lack of introspection here is stunning to me in that it comes up again and again and again. In the section on never use a long word or a short word one will do, he almost immediately says, a speaker who uses that kind of phraseology has gone, <laughs> phraseology, that's a pretty damn long word there. I and mean, I'm sure I could cut phraseology down by at least two or three syllables. Phrase, that's shorter than phraseology. I don't know why he was so lacking in introspection about his own writing. I do think I know why people are still so adamant in sharing this. As I think people just want tools, they want to reduce this glorious mess that is English to a series of concrete steps that you can take to make it definably better. Should I use a long word? Never. How about should I use this simile that I know? Never. These are things that you can say to yourself. When should I use a simile that I'm used to seeing in print? You should never use a simile. No, I'm going to never use a simile and my (laughs) writing will therefore be better. But I don't think that language responds well to this kind of absolutism. It gives us a sense of comfort. It must be better because I'm following these rules that were set down in the journal Horizon and that our results will be better. I don't think that that's
2: the way that it works. He's completely ignorant on matters of the scientific study of language on what we would call linguistics. He's not a linguist. But he's a good writer. And that is the problem here, which is that so many people, and especially declinists or language change deniers, people who say kids today, they often want language to be like math. They want it to be logical and they want to find a formula. I think what this all points to for me is that good prose style is much more art than science. And it requires, dare I say it, humanities exposure, the kind of general exposure to good writing and lots of it that you can only get if you read a lot. And that's really the club to join. Join the readers who then can identify, oh, yes, that is a nicely turned phrase. And the fact is, Orwell writes this in 1946, and he has nothing but contempt and scorn for all political discourse. And yet he's within a couple of years of Churchill saying, we shall meet them on the beaches, we shall meet them on the landing grounds. He's within a couple of years of FDR saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Some of the greatest political utterances in the history of the language were made just a couple of years before this essay was written. So he's kind of deliberately putting his thumb on the scale, which is what a lot of essayists do. And he's got the right reflex, but the wrong tools. He's not equipped to help others write. All he really is doing is listing his peeves.
0: But Peter, those examples that you cite, Churchill and FDR, I think Orwell would have yeah. given the thumbs up to. He would have said, yes, yeah. these no, are they, good examples. are following
1: his rules. There is something to be said for that. Those are well-written. Mm-hmm. And I think they're very effective, particularly as political discourse. And so again, if we're gonna be kind to Orwell, we can say that yes, a lot of what he's saying will apply to the current political language that was being used to something that Peter said a few minutes ago, and I'm going to disagree with that, which is Mm -hmm. that you said people want language to be like math. I think in some ways they do, but actually I think people want language to be like religion more than they want it to be like math. There's a comfort that people get from certain religious structures that some other people try to get from certain linguistic structures, that there are things which are done by the righteous and there are things that are done by the unrighteous in a way, and that a lack of adherence to this set of structure betokens a lack of moral fiber in Mm -hmm. a way, because we make these value judgments of people based on their language use, which have nothing to do with anything Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And it's not a one-to-one comparison between religion and language, but I am often reminded of religious fervor when I hear the way
2: that certain people talk about how language use should be. A big part of the conversations that we've all had with members of the public or strangers people who correspond with the dictionary in one way or another, is some kind of membership of a club. You care about language in the way that I do. And there is absolutely a huge sort of moral component that is imposed upon that. We always are judging others by their use of language. We are always judged by our use of language, by the way we spell, by the way we pronounce words. That's just a simple human fact. It's easier for us as professionals to separate that from culture. So what you just said, Ammon, which is so true, which is that these things have nothing to do with drawing moral conclusions, whether you end a sentence with a preposition or whether you don't put an apostrophe in your. And yet it becomes a shorthand for the kind of person that I want to know or the kind of person that I grew up with or the kind of person my parents raised me to be. (laughs) That's very extra linguistic, isn't it? And that's why I think, Ammon, your analysis is brilliant. It takes you into something like religion like culture, that goes way beyond what a language can do, but we extrapolate so much from it.
0: Language does indeed do that. It is one of the things that a language does. The different ways that language are used, it generates these in-groups and out-groups. But I think it is really important to reflect back on that and to recognize that good grammar does not mean ethical. You can have by-the-book grammar, And never conjugate a verb incorrectly and be a horribly unethical person. That is wholly possible. Exactly.
1: So if we go back to Orwell, I don't want to be too harsh in my assessment of him, though I don't think he had any business writing about language. But this was just an essay that he wrote. And I think the real problem here was that it's been then kept alive by other people who are trying to turn it into something that it's not and that it's not equipped to handle. I think insofar as these kinds of exhortatory writing advice pieces go, I'm willing to go as far as you should write better. You should consider your language. You should write carefully. I think these are all fine things to say. I start to shut down when I see the the linguistic absolutism. Never do this. Never do that. There are very few cases I can think of in which you should never do something. I'm not going to say you should never, of course, because that would contraindicate myself. But there are very few cases in which I would feel comfortable saying never do
2: this. If you remove politics from this essay, I find it hard to distinguish it from Strunk and White, another famous book that also offers advice that is poorly constructed from a linguistics point of view.
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of problems with Strunk and White, but I feel that Strunk and White is actually more forgiving than this. I mean, Strunk and White, I don't think they say things like never start a sentence with end and but. They actually have some flexibility, not much. And I think Strunk and White is a horrible dated document that should be burned in a trash heap. It's not as bad as
2: this. I can't help but quote our friend Jeffrey Pullum, the great grammarian who refers to Strunk and White as a toxic little compendium of nonsense.
0: Yes. Yes, And grammarian as in a linguist. A
2: linguist and (laughs) professor of grammar and author of maybe the definitive grammar of the English language today, but also someone who has a great flair.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic quote. So the reason that this essay, of course, has been promulgated and is the reason we are talking about it today is because people are still talking about it because people still want guidance on how to write better. And I am wondering, Ammon, as a writer, how do you think people should learn to write Mm. better? Putting aside for a minute the writers who think that they have all this advice to offer to the rest of us, how should people who want to improve their writing do so?
1: Read more. Read writers you Mm. like is the way to go about it. For me, one of the main issues with a lot of the standard writing books is even writers that we enjoy, like many people enjoy Stephen King. I think he has some fine characteristics in his writing when he starts giving writing advice, he had this great passage where he talked about all the times you shouldn't use adverbs. And people went through and found dozens and dozens of adverbs in the page that he was talking about. You shouldn't use adverbs in your writing. And it kind of quickly became apparent that he didn't really know what an adverb was in (laughs) a lot of cases. And that kind of writing advice, I think, doesn't work. I know a number of other writers who have read Stephen King and talked about the way that they've been influenced by his writing, the ways that he develops plot, maybe his character development. Any number of things, which he does phenomenally well. I think that's a great way to learn writing. If for nothing else, one of my biggest peeves about this kind of language writing is that it's almost inevitably it is focusing on the negative. And why, when we hear people say, oh, I care about language, why is that so often synonymous with saying, I like to talk trash about the way that other people use language? Why, when people say, I care about language, and let me share with you some of the things that I think are really beautiful about it. These are some fine examples of well-turned phrases. Why is that so infrequently something that we come across? I think if you care about language, if you love language, you should be embracing the kind of delectability of it, the fine use of language. Look at some of the nice ones. There's so much beautiful language around us that I think we're really doing ourselves a disservice, not to mention the people who opt to listen to us, we're doing them a much greater disservice if all we do is focus on the negative.
0: That's totally true. But, you know, it's easier to point out the ugliness than it is to, quote, the sublime. There is gorgeous writing out there that can just be staggering. I think the other thing is that if you want to improve your writing, it's really nice to think that there are some distinct steps that you can take that will then result in you being an improved writer. And that's really comforting and much simpler than read, 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 read. Read good writers, read over and over and over again and identify things you really like and then read something aloud that you have written and see how it feels. And writing well is not about following distinct steps. It's about getting a feel for it, Mm -hmm. right? It is an art form But the really tricky thing about it is that we all use language. Painters have paint as their territory. That's their medium. I don't even have to dabble in it. I mean, I paint my bathroom, whatever. I don't have mastery, and I don't think that I have mastery of paint at all, and I don't need to. But as a speaker of English and as somebody who has to write an occasional email or whatever, even if I weren't a lexicographer— All of us as native speakers, we use this tool and then some people use it professionally and it's a very tricky territory and some people use it artistically and some people use it solely for jargon and some people use it for political purposes. We need the language to do so much and it does do all these different things and to get really good at writing creatively or writing in a way that moves people or that convinces people feels like it should be simple because you know the tools, you know the words, you know the prepositions, you know the basic sentence structure, but to actually do it in a way that is compelling takes a lot of practice. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey. For Amon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.